Cool. Um, we're going to jump in, um, talk briefly about, uh, about desire. You know, our, our craving and our desires run deep within us. Um, desire is, is a reality that God put within each one of us. And as humans, we were actually created with a deep and I would say even infinite well of desire within us. Um, meaning desire was never designed to land on stuff. It was designed to land on an infinite God. Our infinite desire for, our infinite well of desire was not designed to land on the things that God made, but designed to land on the source of those things. And so the default setting of the human condition is, is not atheism. The default setting of the human condition is idolatry. We naturally are drawn to desire the things of this world. And our culture fuels this. Marketing fuels this. Social media fuels this. Advertisement seeks to monetize your restlessness and your endless desire that you have. Which means this, the accumulation of stuff though attractive, will never give you what you think it will. And as followers of Jesus, we are invited to learn about a practice that confronts and clarifies and guides these desires. And that practice is contentment. So this morning, I want to talk about the weapon of contentment, the mighty weapon of contentment, that contentment is designed to be the weapon that slays greed. I want to talk about contentment with you this morning. And as we continue this conversation about work and, and money, I want to hone in on this word contentment. So last week we talked about how Jesus uh, informs us around money, talked about how money is a tool. It was never designed to be a treasure, but our hearts can turn money into a treasure. And money is a litmus test of our character and our treasure. And so today I want to talk about contentment. I want to do so in Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 is a, a farewell text. It's the, the final conversation that Paul has in person with this church in Ephesus. It's been several years with this church in Ephesus. He now is leaving this church. There's many tears as he's leaving this church, and we hear the conversation of him with the elders of the church in Ephesus. They are parting ways. He's about to go to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, he's about to go to Rome, and, and in going to Rome, he's likely going to be killed. And he knows this is the last time he's going to see these guys. And, and so he has this conversation with them that we're going to have the privilege of being able to hear. And so we know a lot about Ephesus. We actually spent some time last fall in a series on uh, the little letter called Ephesians. And Ephesus was a, a booming metropolis. It was filled with commerce. It was filled with affluence. It was filled with wealth. It was filled with this pride of nationalism and a worship of Caesar, the desire to be rich and to have more was normative in Ephesus. That sounds familiar to our own lives. And herein, this band of Jesus followers, men and women who were rescued by the grace of Jesus, were navigating through how to live in this world of more, this world of affluence, this world of wealth, how to live in this place and posture their hearts towards being followers of Jesus. You know, it reminds me of Greek mythology. Some of you guys are just gurus in, in Greek mythology, and so you'll probably make fun of me when I use an example that maybe I don't know a lot about. And for others of you, you'll be shocked that I know this. And so there, in Greek mythology, there was a character called a siren. This siren was a half-bird, half-woman creature. 
It's figurative. Try to use, if you have a hard time using your imagination, I know it's really hard. Um, but these half birds, half women would sing these songs on the coast. And they would allure the shipmen, the ones who uh, sailed, and they would sing these songs trying to draw them to the coast to hit the rock, crash, and die. So these sirens allured these shipmen, these sailors to these areas, to their destruction. And see, the desire to be rich and to have more became the sirens for the church in Ephesus. And like us, they felt this pool this draw towards more, this, uh, this, this desire, if un, un, uh, lack, uh, desire lacking boundaries would lead us into these places of destruction. So as Paul leaves Ephesus, he cautions them to not get caught up with the siren's allure for more. So we read in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, We'll pick it up in 32 on the screen, but starting in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. So we see a, he's about to share with them some necessary things. And so we fast forward a little bit to verse 32 of Acts 20, and it says this. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by, work, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Paul begins and he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. A word command we don't use very often, but it means to set before. It's a verb, it's action, it's a posture of surrender. I commend you to God. The message version, Eugene Peterson, who uses the, uh, he paraphrases the, the Bible and the message, he says about, he's, he paraphrases this section by saying this, now I'm turning you over to God, our marvelous God whose gracious word can make you into what he wants you to be and give you everything you could possibly need in this community. So he says, I'm, I'm turning you over to God. I surrender you to God. I commend you to God. I surrender you to the God who created all things and who sustains all things. I surrender you to his profound gift of grace that softens and melts the human heart. This, this grace that changes us to the core, which has provided a rich inheritance now and what is to come. See, there's something amazing about the grace of God that frees us of our need to be what we can't be. There's this powerful nature of the grace of God that frees us from the pressure to perform, that causes us to be shocked at the measure of God and how deep he would go to love us. So he commends us and he surrenders us to the gospel. Sinner rescued by grace. He commends us. Remind us to believe it, to live it, to remember it. He says, I didn't live among you in this posture of greed. 
He talks about how I, I didn't covet your, your money and your stuff. But he goes on to say, but I adhered to this statement of our Lord Jesus, that it is better to give than to receive. See, these were the last words of Paul. I mean, think about it. Like the last time he's about to leave, he's going to write him a letter, and he's going to write a letter to their elder, Timothy, later. He doesn't know that. He, he thinks he's going to die pretty soon. And so that one of the last things he talks to this church about is the gospel and greed. It's very interesting that he understood the significance of them remembering the gospel and how the gospel actually motivates us and causes us to be a generous people that fights against the temptation of greed. See, the gospel and generosity are inseparable. They are welded together. When we understand that God has been so significantly gracious and therefore generous to us, if received rightly, it compels us to be a people of generosity. It doesn't end in us being a dead end. It creates in us, over time, this this ability to be generous as God has been generous to us. See, grace is radical. When we experience that radical grace, it leads us to live in a posture of radical generosity. That's what the gospel does to us. The invitation of Jesus, man, it's so gentle. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But it's wake, the effects of the gospel, does its good work in the way that it severs and dethrones things within our lives. See, Jesus is kind enough to not leave us to our own vices. He doesn't just invite us to follow me, but live exactly how you once lived. No, he invites us into a posture of actually being transformed by him. He is a gentle surgeon, but surgery is not designed to be pain-free. He desires to get into the core of who we are and to change us. And the gospel does that, and it leads us into being a generous people. The gospel, it affects us. The radical nature of the ridiculous grace leads us to a posture of generosity. So I have a couple points that I want to consider as we look at this text. The first is this. There is healing power in generosity. There's healing power in being a people that are generous. Paul says it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give it away than to receive it. It's challenging for us to hear something like that. We have muted this word blessed. If you've grown up or kind of heard about the prosperity gospel, prosperity gospel is this idea that because you're loved by God, he'll give you what you want. And that's true when it comes to spiritual things. That's not true when it comes to material things. Oftentimes, the richest people in God are sometimes not very well off at all. Blessed isn't in having more. Blessed isn't in having easier circumstances. Blessed is touching the fringes of shalom. You guys know that word shalom? The word peace? It's this vision of the future day when Jesus comes and wipes away grief and sorrow and pain and disappointment forever. It's no longer a friend that we know or a foe that we know. It's now in our rear view forever. And blessedness, to be blessed, is to touch the fringes of shalom, to enter into this place of peace. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Actually translated happy, but it's not happy in the way that we see it in just like a feeling. It's this joy-filled happiness that supersedes our circumstances, goes beyond it. The more blessed we are than to give 
We're more blessed to give than to receive. The message says it like this. You're far happier giving than getting. It is through radical giving of your life, specifically of your money, that you begin to heal the world. That's what's interesting about our sacred and secular divide. We have this idea that, uh, well, I would say positively, I think we can forget the invitation that God's given to us that through our work, through our money, through our generosity, we actually can cultivate and keep and make better this world. So a few weeks ago, Drew talked about this vision of a Drew, uh, redeemed understanding of work. Over these last few weeks, we've been talking about how work leads to finance, and when we use our finance to leverage it for the kingdom, we actually can bring healing and life to the world. We use our craft to image God, and we use a, and steward our finances to do the same. See, we are in a church, and I know it's difficult in your mind maybe to be honest when you show up to church, but because you showed up here, it's a reminder that you are in need of a hospital, because we see the church as a hospital. So you can take your mask off. We have to ask the question, because we value authenticity, do we really believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Like, functionally. It's one thing, like a Sunday morning, pretty good, good songs, hearts stirred, remembering God. But like, do we really functionally believe with our lives, with our, I would say checkbook, but nobody has a checkbook, with our, with our online banking, do we, do we really believe truly that it's more blessed touching the, the fringes of shalom to give than to receive? Do we live from this place of generosity? Again, there's healing power in generosity. Something happens to our soul, like at the core of who we are, when we let go and trust God with our lives. We're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks in our series on Lent. But when we, when we set aside, we're going to talk about tithing next week, um, and if that's a New Testament call or not, to be continued. Uh, but nonetheless, the idea of tithing, historically, was designed to remind the people of God to trust God with your life. Similar to Sabbath, every seven days we submit a day to God and we say, we trust you and we could be doing more, like we could be putting that 10% towards a, an account that would have a good return. We're trusting you with our lives. Generosity does that. When we remember we serve a generous God, when we seek first the kingdom, we're reminded of this gift of generosity. It brings healing to our lives. We ended last week talking about this statement that Jesus landed as he ended this conversation with the rich young ruler. Remember we talked about last week uh, being a first century financial advisor. And we had the, the widow who came and we had the rich young ruler who came before us. And, and Jesus talks about how our lives aren't made up of a bunch of possessions. And he landed and he said, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, but seek first the kingdom. And he said, fear not, little flock. Your father's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. See, when we posture our hearts and we say, we want to be a generous people, what it does is it puts a bullseye on the, our soul and says, God, I want to trust you with my life. I don't want to cling to my finance and my life, but I want to trust you in my life. And what that does is it brings healing to the core of who we are. See, our generosity becomes healing because it reminds me that I have everything I need because I have a Father in heaven. Our generosity becomes a healing because it reminds us to let go of controlling our life. Healing comes from this posture. Second point from this text is this. Be careful 
of the hidden destructive power of greed. We must be careful, cautious of the hidden destructive power of greed. Paul says, I have not coveted your silver or your gold. I have not coveted it, which means that he likely had the temptation to do so. You know, thanks to, I'll say it like this, Paul says, I, I fought against this thing that wars within my soul. And thanks to social media, we have a new way to torment each other. You know, social media's mantra is, it's more blessed to give torment than to receive it. You know, torment is at the core in some ways of what social media is. It's image crafting and is the essence of social media, making us look way better and way more successful than we actually are. We curate the best parts of our lives, not the worst. You see no acne on, on Instagram. You see the best of your life, the smiles of your life, not the pain and the sorrow, and the best, and now we feel this allure that, man, their life's better than mine, and this greed begins, and envy begins to arise within our hearts, and it becomes tormenting. It fuels this raging temptation to have what we don't have, and marketing knows this. It's filled, if you're in marketing, you're probably not like this, but marketing in and of itself is, is filled with this hidden destructive power of more. If you only had this, you'd be more happy. If you only had that, you would be more at peace. And it's not true. You get those things and you don't receive what it promises. Marketing becomes like this fishing exercise where, where we are like the fish and marketing is like the hook. And then you get the, the worm of the promise or the cricket, depending upon how you roll. Uh, and, and so you put, you have the the you have the promise on the hook, and so we, as these dumb fish, go back to the same cricket and same worm that's just floating in the middle of the water, and we try to bite it, and we get hooked. The next thing you know, marketing pulls us out of the water and, and lays us out vertically and, and says that we are bigger than we actually are, and it becomes this saga for us. See, the point is that marketing engages our desires and makes promises it can't fulfill. Greed destroys us. We're not careful. Marketing pulls us. There's this hidden destruction that's found in greed. What's interesting is that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and Ephesians, and he wrote to one of their elders, to Timothy. That's why it's called Timothy. And in, in chapter 6, understanding the context of Ephesus, filled with affluence, a desire for more, Paul says this in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is, is great gain. Again, this theme of contentment you'll see. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, money's neutral, we talked about that last week. The love of money is root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul didn't condemn their income. Paul didn't condemn their income, but instead he challenged their motive. He, like Jesus, focused on the heart treasure. And he sees, says, be cautious that the tool of money, man, it can turn into a greedy treasure. And here's what desiring to get rich entails. This is from the NIV. It's really interesting. Same, same passage, but from the NIV. Here's what desiring to get rich entails. 
that you fall into temptation, that desiring to get rich, that you become ensnared in a trap. Desiring temptation from this text in NIV, that you succumb to many foolish desires. Desiring rich leads to giving into many harmful desires. Desiring to get rich means that you're going to plunge into ruin or you will drown, resulting in our destruction, leading to all kinds of evil. Desiring to get rich in 1 Timothy 6 out of the NIV is causing us to wander potentially from the faith, piercing ourselves with many griefs. And if this passage in 1 Timothy 6 becomes our guide, we have to ask the payoff like the payoff of seeking to become rich and the profit of seeking wealth as the final goal. And greed can ruin your life. This is what is pumped into our veins. If you want proof that the Bible's warning against desiring to be rich has merit, just consider the biographies of lottery winners. Did some studies on this recently. You know, Americans spend $98 billion on lottery tickets last year. $98 billion. It's a lot of cash. More than books, movies, music, sporting events, video games combined. $98 billion. You know, gaining instant money doesn't change the underlying heart issue around greed. There's a lot of examples I could give, but I'll give two. One's short, one's a little longer. The first is a Texas man won $31 million. And two years into spending at nauseam, he ended up, and this is a horror story, but he ended up dying by suicide. He, the, the effects of a love of money that Paul told Timothy 2,000 years ago with the depth of wisdom that it did proved to be true. Second story is a guy named Willie Seeley. Seems like a guy that would win the lottery. Willie Seeley. And if your name's Willie, man, so glad you're here. Willie Seeley. Him and some coworkers went in and won $450 million combined. And immediately they were super happy, but within two months, someone came up to him afterwards and, and asked how things were going. And he said, there are, he had, had so many regrets. He said, there are days I wish we were back to just getting paid every two weeks. You have to change your whole, you, yeah, you have to change your whole way of life. But we didn't want to change the way we lived. And here we are. His wife went on to say that the winnings were a curse. Man, maybe First Timothy had some accuracy. Maybe Paul's desire to confront greed had some accuracy. Maybe the Bible actually is more relevant than we realize in the way it challenges us in this regard. If you don't trust me, trust the poet Notorious B.I.G. that said, it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Money isn't evil. It's neutral. But greed in our hearts can become like a stage five cancer that destroys us and drowns us and ruins us. See, the love of it can ruin us. No one in their right mind would want these promises that are made in 1 Timothy 6, yet greed can fuel us in more ways than we realize. I love the way that Proverbs 38 and 9 are presented in the NIV where it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may too may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. 
in a culture of more, there is nothing quite as significant than confronting this destructive power that's found in greed. So the question is, is there a practice in the life and the teaching of Jesus that helps us to confront this reality of greed? And the answer is yes, which leads to the third point, which is this. We can kill greed in our hearts with the weapon of contentment. We can kill greed in our hearts with the weapon of contentment. I don't know if we understand the power of contentment. What is contentment? Randy Alcorn says contentment is this. Being satisfied in whose you are, who you are, and what you have. Being satisfied with whose you are, who you are, and what you have. See, contentment is a practice that we desperately need to fight our internal greed and our external pressure to have more than we have. See, the Bible is so impactful. It's farthest from archaic. The good book invites us into this way of life. Paul, Paul gives a picture of contentment. We see um, some of it in 1 Timothy 6 that we just read, but a little more explicitly, we see it in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 12 of Philippians 4. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, we can read that, and it can sound like it's coming from this posture of, I can do all things through Christ because of adversity, he can help me through. But if you go to just a verse before, he says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. See, his contentment, that was the thing that was tethered to, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not adversity, it's this posture of contentment. Did you hear that he says, I learned to be content. The one who wrote 13 books in the New Testament says that he learned. He had to learn about this practice of contentment. It is a learned discipline. It is a art that he learned to grow in. It is a necessary practice that is a weapon against greed. Paul learned this. He didn't stumble into it. You stumble into being a greedy person. You don't stumble into being a content person. See, contentment is being satisfied in whose you are, who you are, and what you have. We were created to appreciate God's gifts and allow all of those gifts to point to God as the source, those gifts as the shadow, and God as the source. See, contentment is a learned virtue. In Drew Holcomb's album, Dragons, he has a song, You Want What You Can't Have. And in it, there's a few lines that say this. You want what you can't have. Since the Garden of Eden, it's been like that. You can't tear down the tree or pull all the weeds. Spend your life looking for the greener grass. I mean, we strive and we yearn to find stuff to fulfill, but contentment is found in being content in God's gifts that he's given to us. Contentment is something that we learn. It's acknowledging that stuff and circumstances don't change who I am. What you have or don't have, how you're perceived or not perceived, your influence or lack thereof, they don't change who you are. It doesn't change your identity. This doesn't mean we enter into this posture of apathy. It doesn't mean that we aren't excellent in what we do. 
but it's recognizing I don't need what I don't have. It's this posture of thanking and being grateful for what God has given to us. John Stott says this about contentment. He says, contentment is the secret of inward peace. Again, it's a touching of shalom. It remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Life, in fact, is a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing but enough. We've got enough. Simplicity says if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. See, instead we learn to live within our limits and to embrace our life. Instead of allowing social media and the sirens of the temptation of more to lead us into a place of destruction, we, had, we heed to the words of the book in Ecclesiastes, among many other places. Ecclesiastes tells us life is hard and you're not going to get what you want, but enjoy what you have. And there's something really beautiful about that. Don't miss what you have for what you wish you had. Don't miss what you have for what you wish you had. It's so easy to allow what we don't have to keep us from enjoying what we do have. Sociologists affirm this. They say this. There's an equation that happiness equals reality minus expectations. It's interesting. Think about it. Happiness. Take it into the context of what we just read. Blessedness equals your reality, not your future reality, not your hope-filled reality, not once you get to the greener grass reality. Happiness equals your reality, removing the expectations that you have. This is our weapon. Learning contentment is a weapon against greed. I'll close with two brilliant statements in a story. Hebrews 13.5 says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And what's interesting, notice right there and you already have the answer, but what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't allow the tool to turn into a treasure. And he goes on, he says, be content with what you have. And the fuel that he gives to us with regards to how to motivate your contentment is this promise that we see in Joshua, which was this. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you want fuel to motivate contentment in your life? Don't search for circumstances to change. Be more deeply, befriend more deeply the reality that God will never leave you or forsake you. That's gold. You know what slays greed? A deep conviction that God will never leave you. You know what slays greed? A deep conviction that you have everything you need. You don't need just one more thing. You and I have everything we need. He calls us into our identity in this place. This, this promise slaps and it becomes the, the motivation for contentment. Be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The second verse, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Something really beautiful when you remember that you're a sheep and you have a shepherd who cares for you, who guides you, who leads you, and because of that, you have everything you need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. When the Lord is our shepherd, hear me, we lack nothing. We have everything we need. We might, you might not have the life you thought you had, but you got a good life. Be content with what you have. I heard a story about a pilot 
And while flying over the Tennessee mountains, he looked over to his co-pilot and he said, look down at that, that pond or the lake. Look down at this body of water. And so his co-pilot looks down and he said, when I was a kid, I used to sit on a rowboat and I'd fish from that rowboat. And I'd look up into the sky and I'd see airplanes. And I always wished that I was in an airplane flying. He says, now I look down on that body of water and I wish I was on a rowboat fishing. It's the nature of life. Always wanting something but what we have right in front of us. And contentment, it challenges us to remember we have everything that we need. Contentment, it slays greed. Stuff isn't enough. It points us to the fact that we have a good father. Pleasure, food, sex, all of the gifts that God has given us, friendship, relationship, enjoyment of life is all pointing back to the fact that we have a father who cares for us and loves us if we use those things in the way that he designed for us to use those things. Friends, we are summoned to fight greed with the weapon of contentment. Man, oh, how we need to develop this muscle. We're invited to do that, to engage contentment. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have everything we need. You will never leave or forsake. Lord, even as we partake in communion, I thank you for the covenant that you've given to us. And the covenant isn't that we're going to have all of our dreams come true. The covenant is that you will be with us forever. And there's no mountain, no height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation that can keep us from you. God, I give you thanks you supply this. And this morning, I pray you'd anchor us. Keep our hearts free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For you said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Lord, let it get into our bones, God. Let us believe it. Let us not go searching as orphans trying to find meaning and purpose. Let us see it right in front of us. The body of Jesus broken, the blood of Jesus shed covenant forever. I give you thanks. Meet us this morning, God. Let us be aware of your presence. In Jesus' name.